0: Well, good evening, everyone. Please turn in God's Word to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and is found on page 1115. And we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read this short passage, Matthew chapter 5, and it's verses 27 to 30. So listen to God's Word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, we've come to the month of February, and I wonder how many of you have kept your New Year's resolution. resolutions possibly. Often we allow ourselves a cheap day, especially when it comes to a new exercise regime or a new diet. We excuse ourselves. We give a day where we can eat whatever we like. We skip the gym or we veg out. We excuse ourselves. We don't want to beat ourselves up over it. But I wonder if we do the same when it comes to putting sin to death when we're mortifying sin. We have cheat days, days where we overlook um, getting angry, for example, or as we'll be considering today, times when we overlook our lustful desires. We say, it's not a big deal. I'm not acting out on it. It's not affecting me. And so we are quick to excuse it. But our passage shows us that it is a big deal, and that cheat days are not excusable. So I want you to notice you're not to even look lustfully for the consequence is eternity in hell, and so you are to cut off that sin. But only in Christ can you know forgiveness and know victory. And children, I encourage you uh, to turn away your eyes from seeing evil And what does this mean when you're watching TV or when you're online? And so draw a picture of your eyes, maybe no longer watching the TV. So firstly, I want you to notice the super righteousness that Christ demands for you to enter his kingdom. So let's remember the context for our passage. Verse 20, Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus gives us six areas where your righteousness is to exceed that of the righteousness of the Pharisees. For though the Pharisees' righteousness was impressive to the people, Jesus was not impressed by it. Ferguson writes, Pharisaic righteousness was skin deep Christian righteousness is to be real. It is to be true heart conformity to the law of God. Now, last week we saw this in relation to anger. The Pharisees interpreted the command not to murder in the narrowest of ways, that only physical murder is wrong. That is okay to harbor thoughts of murder in your heart. But Jesus says, no, that is wrong you're guilty of murder, even if you have angry thoughts. Many misunderstand Jesus as, mis- as abolishing the law, but Jesus hasn't abolished the law. The law still stands, and we see that Jesus, rather than having a lax view of the law, he has an even stricter view of the law than even the Pharisees. For though the Pharisees were known for their law-keeping, It was only external. It was only superficial. They kept the ceremonies, but their hearts were not involved in it. The righteousness that Jesus demands is sincere. It is internal. It is real. And that is the entrance requirement to get into the kingdom. And Jesus gives it these six areas where we see how the righteousness that he demands is greater than that of the Pharisees. So, we looked at anger last week, and this evening we're going to consider lustful desires. So, secondly, looking lustfully is wrong, for you are committing adultery in your heart. So, Jesus is moving from the Sixth Commandment to the Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery. And we have seen we have the same opening where Jesus tells his disciples, you have heard it was said to those of old, Again, this is Jesus not quoting from the law, but quoting from the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. Like murder, the Pharisees had this narrow interpretation or this narrow view of adultery. They thought that you could not physically commit adultery of someone, but anything else was okay. There were even those who taught that you're not to be found guilty of committing adultery. Meaning, if you get away with it, well, then you are not guilty. And so, as Stott says, they had a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. Another way to get around the seventh commandment was divorce. And so, the Pharisees would encourage divorce for even trivial things. And we'll consider that more next week. Well, Jesus takes the seventh commandment And he helps us understand what it really means. Just like anger, if you commit the sin within the heart, meaning if you look lustfully at a woman or at a man, you are guilty of committing adultery. Let's consider what are lustful desires? So lustful desires are not simply a recognition of beauty. It's not simply being attracted to someone whom you find to be likable. Instead, lustful desires are when you take that attraction to someone beautiful or to someone likable, and then you meditate upon it. You dream upon it. You fantasize over it. You want more from that relationship than what you're allowed. This is a huge issue. It's an issue that affects everyone. No one is immune to it. How do we know this? Well, Just consider advertising. The slogan, Sex Sells, tells us advertisers know that if they can make their product appeal to our lusts, they will be successful. And we see it everywhere. All kinds of products, shampoo, cars, even food. They're advertised to appeal to our lustful desires. they wouldn't do this if they didn't think it would have an appeal on us. Another reality of this problem is the frequency of which we hear of it. The statistics are frightening of those who are addicted to pornography, who are willing to have an affair, who desire to commit even greater offenses. And this problem even affects those who preach against it. And there have been a number of high profile pastors and church leaders who have committed adultery recently. These are mature believers, and yet they fall. Each case, it begins with the thoughts of lust. So do not kid yourself to think that you are immune from lust. Second Samuel 11, we read of King David, a man after God's own heart, and yet he fell as a result of his lustful desires we read that David just so happened to be on the rooftop of his palace in the evening and he beheld the beauty of Bathsheba. And rather than turn around, he wanted more. And within his heart, he desired Bathsheba for himself and he made sure he got what he wanted. And so this is an issue for you as well. Where are your wandering eyes taking you? What thoughts are going through your mind after you behold someone of beauty? As Christians, we need to appreciate beauty. But that does not mean you have to lust over someone who is beautiful. That also means there has to be modesty in how we dress. We're not to encourage lust in someone's heart. But it would be wrong at the same time to have the response of Islam where women have to be covered from head to toe, in case they may attract attention. Now, there has to be self-control within our own thoughts, that we don't allow attraction to become lust. For lust is the same as adultery, and that it breaks the law. Lust demonstrates a heart that is broken. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 15, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. And so lustful desires, they are a demonstration of a heart that is defiled. A heart that's condemned to judgment. And so thirdly, the consequence of your lust is punishment in hell. In verses 28 to 30. So, our society wants to say that lust and sexual permissiveness is not a big deal. Everyone does it. They suggest it's normal. They even want to say that it's healthy. And that's because there is a huge misunderstanding of what lustful desires that lead to sexual intimacy is about. In today's world of individualism and consumerism, we view sexual intimacy as something that we consume. It's about our wants. We even say it's our needs. And we want our needs to be met. And we look for someone to then meet our needs. But when that person that we once desired no longer meets our needs, we simply throw them away. I was reading this week the account of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon lusted after Tamar. He was sick and miserable in his lust for her. And when he finally got her and lay with her, his lust turned to hatred. And we read of this in 2 Samuel 13. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Amnon did not need Tamar. It was simply lust. And when we view lust in this selfish needs way, it is destructive. That was certainly the outcome for Amnon and Tamar. But God, in his goodness, he gave us sexual intimacy. But he also gave us marriage, which is a safe place to express it. Marriage is a covenant. You're making a promise that you will commit yourself to the person, whatever happens, not simply when there is an attraction. And so it's a legal promise which is binding is not easy to get out of. And this creates security. It creates certainty that our emotions will not provide. And so in marriage, there is to be sexual intimacy, where you make yourself vulnerable to your spouse. And this is God's good gift. Ferguson writes, it's within that bond of committed fellowship that family life is to be established, and our sexual instincts are to find their fulfillment. C.S. Lewis writes, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. God has given us something good, and we have marred it. And what and when we lustfully desire, we have marred it when we lustfully desire it outside of marriage. So it's no wonder that he punishes us when we break his law. Jesus very explicitly tells us that the consequence of lust is punishment in hell. And the word for hell here is Gehenna. This was a place just outside Jerusalem where before the reign of King Josiah, children had been sacrificed to the pagan god Moloch. By the time of Christ, This place was seen as accursed, and so it was used as a rubbish dump. They would have burned the rubbish, and so there was this constant fire coming up from Gehenna. And so no wonder it became this picture of hell being accursed and being a place of an unquenchable flame. It pointed to the ongoing agony that awaited those in the next life, but also the reality for those who are lost and sin in this life. They are in a place of unquenchable thirst. That's why Jesus' words to the woman at the well when she offered the water and um, was so, when he offered the water of life, was so meaningful. John four thirteen, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This was a woman who was drinking of the waters of her lustful desires. And just like Jeremiah described in Jeremiah 2, 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The woman had believed the lie, a lie that we are told today, that our lustful desires will satisfy No, they are broken cisterns that leave us thirsty. That will only give us a taste of hell in this life and the reality of hell in the next life. And so, fourthly, you are to cut out of your life what causes you to sin. And so, Jesus uses extreme language to avoid lust and the subsequent punishment of hell. He tells you to pluck out your eye, to cut off your hand, to avoid committing the sin of lust. That's how drastic you are to be. You don't want to go to hell, and so you should be willing to cut off a part of your body to survive. Now, on May 1st, 2003, Aaron Ralston, a 27-year-old backpacker, he did the unthinkable in order to save his life. He had been pinned for five days by an 800-pound boulder in a remote canyon in Utah. There was no way out. Either he must cut off his arm or he would die. And so on the fifth day, tired, hungry, dehydrated, he took out his dull pocket knife and he sawed through his flesh just below the elbow in order to free himself. He lost his arm, but he saved his life. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying and how you are to deal with your sin. Whatever causes you to sin, you are to remove it, for your sin will lead to your death. Now, Jesus is not calling us to mutilate ourselves. Some early Christians, like Origen of Alexandria, actually believed this and castrated himself. Well, this practice was thankfully outlawed by the Council of Nicaea. What Jesus is saying is that you should be willing to do extreme things to remove sinful temptation from your life, to stop yourself from sinning. Removing your eyes, well, that points to the fact to what you're not to look at. You're not to linger when you do see something that will tempt you to sin. One of the biggest struggles that we have in this generation is that of pornography. John Stott, writing in the 1970s, said, One wonders if there has ever been a generation in which this teaching of Jesus was more needed or more obviously applicable than our own, in which the river of filth, pornographic literature and sex films is in spate. Well, Stott could not have imagined how 50 years later there would now be a deluge of material that comes right into people's homes through the internet. And now with the advance of virtual reality, it's only to get worse. And so we have to cut it off. We have to put filters on our phones and on our computers. You have to keep your phones away from your kids. Job describes making a covenant with his eyes. And you too have to put a guard on what you look at. Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Well, removing your hands, and a Mark's account, removing your feet, well, it speaks of the things that you do and the places that you visit. And so if you find there are places of temptation or people of temptation, you are to avoid it. And Joseph is the obvious example. When he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife, he ran. He knew he would not have resisted her advances if he simply stayed. And there are places where you simply have to leave. Maybe you're at the cinema and you realize that this is not an appropriate movie. Well, get up and go. Or maybe you're at an exhibition and you realize the content here is not good. Well, get out. If you're in company and you realize that this discussion is not appropriate or what they're doing is wrong, you are to simply leave. But better still, Don't get yourself in a position of compromise where you will lust before you even go. And instead, you are to focus on what is good and what is right. And Philippians 4 tells us what that is. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. Compare everything that you consume with these verses. And ultimately, these verses speak of Christ. Barry Cooper says, That is a perfect description of Christ, because everything that is most admirable, most excellent, most praiseworthy, is seen most fully in him. Do whatever you can to fill your mind with Christ. Well, fifthly, in Christ you know forgiveness and victory over your sinful desires. While you are to make every effort, the reality is we have succumbed to our lustful desires. Our eyes have looked on evil. Our hands, our feet have taken us into sin. Now, I mentioned before that I was reading the biography of William Grimshaw, the minister of Hayworth, and before he became a Christian, and he was still a minister at this time, I was reading of how Grimshaw dealt with a young man who had gotten a girl pregnant. And this young man did not want to take responsibility for the girl and what he had done. And so Grimshaw, he dressed up as the devil, donning a large and ugly mask, complete with horns. He knew the young man's route home, and so he hid himself, and he waited in the shadows. And as the young man approached, Grimshaw surprised him and grabbed him, and the young man believed him to be the devil. Grimshaw told him that he was going to take him away to hell. And so the young man promised to marry the girl, and he was released. Well, the biographer writes, feeling as he did to preach the gospel, Grimshaw had few other means than such bizarre methods as this to improve standards in his parish. Well, you'll be glad to know that Rich and I won't be dressing up as the devil to scare you into submission we have something much more powerful. We have the gospel. And Jesus, in giving this command to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, he is giving you a loving warning. Tai says he's warning us about hell because he does not want you to go there. He knows that our sin, if left undealt with, will take us to a place of unimaginable and unending suffering. He warns us because he loves us but plucking out our eye cutting off our hand is not the cure for our sin problem that will not achieve for us a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees no for sin as we have considered is from the heart and so it's our hearts that need to be cured from sin it's our hearts that need to be made righteous right with god and we can't do this ourselves But that is why Christ has come. Jesus is exposing us here in this passage. He's helping us to see our sinfulness. He's encouraging us to admit to our struggle with lust. But he doesn't leave us to simply feel guilt and shame. No, he took that guilt, and he took that shame on himself. He took that punishment for sin, which was death on the cross. And through his atoning sacrifice, you have received the forgiveness of sins. But not only does Christ forgive us of our sins, he also enables us to live free of sin. We can be free of lust. Too often we concede defeat. We think to ourselves, it's too much of a struggle. I can't overcome. But in Christ, you have hope, and so you are to come to him humbly and he will give you strength, for in him you are a new person. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You no longer have to give in to your lustful desires. Now you can be strong enough to resist. In Christ you are victorious, but the question is, do you trust Christ in this? Augustine, the early church theologian, sinned sexually again and again in his early life but then Christ changed him and there is an account that while Augustine was walking down the street that one of his old lovers walked toward him and Augustine immediately went in the opposite direction but she called after him saying Augustine it is I and Augustine responds I know but it is not I and he could say this for he is a new person in Christ and so are you for you know Christ's forgiveness And you know his victory. So you're not to look lustfully. The consequences are serious. And so you are to cut off that sin. But only in Christ do you know forgiveness. And you know victory over that sin. This is a radical teaching for our day and age. But let's not forget, it was also a radical teaching at the time of Christ. Living in the Roman Empire. A teaching so radical that it led to a sexual revolution. Scrivener writes, Christianity brought an earthquake in sexual morality. Jesus comes along and basically says that men must be as restrained in their sexuality as women had always been expected to be. And in the second century, the apologist Justin Martyr defended Christianity before the emperor Antonius Pius. And in his apology, he said, if you want to see visible proof of the truth of Christianity, observe our chastity so Jesus' teaching here is not something that we are to be ashamed of in today's culture. Quite the opposite. It is what people actually crave. They desire contentment, to be free from their lustful desires. And this contentment is found only in Christ. So let's not forget, you're not to even look lustfully, for the consequences are serious. So cut off that sin. Only in Christ do you know forgiveness and victory over it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you crying out for help. We often struggle with our lustful desires. Help us see the seriousness of lust. You have described it as committing adultery in our heart. Help us to heed the warning so we would not fall into its consequences, which we see is ultimately hell. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him we are forgiven and that in him we know the victory. And so, Lord, we pray for your help and your strength this week, that we would not fall, that we would trust you instead and know your help and know your grace that we have in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn your psalm book to Psalm 51a, Psalm 51a. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he was convicted of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. In God, he recognizes that he has been washed clean and that his rest, he rests his plead on God's grace. And that's what we are to do likewise. So let's stand and sing Psalm 51a.